This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. lot of deal making out there a lot of big deals made but one that has come apart uh, involves the unfortunately named i think we can all agree trunk and tribune and all of the things associated uh, with those media properties (laughs) we want to make sense of it all so we're turning to a couple of experts todd shields he's our fcc reporter down in washington he joins us there from our bloomberg 991 studio and here in new york in our bloomberg 1130 studio we have brooke sutherland She's, of course, deals and industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. So, Todd, I want to start with you. A billion-dollar suit was filed against Sinclair by Tribune. What does this all mean? How did this come to a head? Hi. Uh, well, it's the uh, the tail end of what's been a, a long struggle here for uh, both companies, it turns out. Uh, Sinclair last year proposed to buy Tribune Media, which is distinct, I have to say, from Tronk. Tronk owns newspapers, and they're not part of this deal. Tribune Media owns a bunch of TV stations and a big cable channel, and uh, that's what Sinclair wanted to buy to become a really big broadcaster. Uh, The deal's been in trouble here in Washington for a long time. Troubles accelerated last month when the FCC sent it to a hearing that could last possibly years, Tribune said in a filing today, could delay the merger for years. So Tribune pulled the plug rather than suffer further. Right. And I should be clear. Thank you for clarifying that. Trunk and Tribune are distinct companies. And yet... Brooke Sutherland, you write in a very smart both column in the news. that they're both in the news for di- for different reasons, obviously, and they may, you say, in your piece, may get the last laugh uh, last laugh after some very tough goes of it. Yes, difficult circumstances. Um, I'll start with Trunk. So they had that very high profile takeover battle with Gannett, which was back in 2016, actually. And they pretty much just had us just say no defense. They pulled out every trick in the book. They brought in a white knight investor. They had all of these, you know, just awful corporate governance practices that essentially prevented this deal from getting done, along with Gannett's bankers pushing back on the valuation. Um, And this company has sort of been floundering a bit since it's had a lot of different um scandals i guess if you want to say it uh, in terms of its management of the newsrooms at the papers that it owns um it is not beloved by the employees i think is safe to say uh chairman michael farrow who was really the architect of this just say no defense against gannett had to step down amid sexual harassment allegations. Um, He tried to sell his stake in the company, but that deal ultimately fell through. And now there's a report that Tronk might sell itself to a private equity firm at a really high price, especially considering that the company has already sold off the LA Times to its second biggest investor, Patrick Soon-Chiong. Which was an amazing turn of events in and of itself because he was essentially thrown off the board, right? Yes. He was kicked off the board, um, accused of being disruptive. There were some questions about trades that he made um, and in, in Tronk's stock. And he was also accused by Tronk of angling to buy the LA Times. And they said they're not interested in doing that unless he makes a bid for the whole company, 
obviously that's not exactly and what then they happened. sold them the la times and not the rest of the company yes exactly Amazing. oh my Amazing. god all these moving parts so all right as as we've made some distinctions between tronk and tribune um todd let's go back to tribune for a moment so tribune has filed this suit against sinclair uh, and it has to do with questioning kind of Sinclair's honesty. What's the legal grounds for this? Where are regulators going to be on this? Well, we're waiting to see what the regulators do. Uh, the Justice Department has said basically nothing in public about this deal. Uh, the FCC sent it to that possibly lengthy hearing, and Sinclair this afternoon said, we want to withdraw from that hearing. We're going to withdraw the application at the FCC and withdraw from the hearing. Let's see what the FCC says about this. There are some who are saying the FCC should examine Sinclair, uh, whether it's wor- worthy to hold a license. Uh, uh, what did they do forward. wrong? Well, according to Tribune, the problem was that that Sinclair, according to the suit, Sinclair pursued, if you will, a maximalist strategy before regulators, which slowed things way down. Uh, The regulators at the Justice Department, according to Tribune, uh, said, sell these 10 stations, sell stations in these 10 markets, excuse me, I'll I'll put it that way, and uh, we'll clear you. And Tribune, uh, excuse me, Sinclair wouldn't take yes for an answer, if you will. Uh, Let me read just a little little something from uh, a a, a complaint by Tribune. They say Sinclair uh, breached its contractual obligations to finish up the deal quickly, quote, in spectacular fashion. You don't often see, uh, I don't think, that in, in legal legalese. You know, uh, uh, spectacular. So uh, a little bit more, and then I'll stop. Sinclair engaged in belligerent and unnecessarily protracted negotiations with regulators, says Tribune. So that's the basis of it. They say, look, we were left uh, standing at the altar for a very long time because you, Sinclair, uh, weren't doing it right. And, of course, Sinclair rejects it and says they're going to defend vigorously in court. I think what's so striking to me about this, though, is that the regulatory environment was welcoming to this deal. Right. You know, the yeah. FCC changed. I mean, they didn't change, but they took advantage of a regulatory loophole to allow Sinclair to go beyond the media ownership limits. And they really, I mean, they couldn't have held the door open any wider. And they, Sinclair just seems to not have been able to get out of its own way. And you read these reports, they were trying to sell stations to a business affiliate of their chairman, to a company that was affiliated with his family. I mean, this is all things that should be obvious that you shouldn't do when you're trying to get regulatory approval for a deal that's already rather contentious. Right. And especially when regulators were kind of, as you said, opening the door for them (laughs) to kind of get it done. Um, All right. So what's next? Just quickly, Todd Shields, 10 seconds. What's the next thing that we have to watch out for in the Tribune Sinclair suit? Well, we wait to see Sinclair's next move. They say they might still be in the market to do some transactions. We wait to see if the FCC lets them off the hook. And what about you, Brooks Book? What are you watching with this kind of trifecta of companies? I'm watching to see what happens with Tribune Media and whether another uh, another buyer comes along. If you remember back when they had the deal negotiations, Nextstar Media was in the mix, was really going toe-to-toe with Sinclair for a while. A couple of private equity firms were interested. Also, Fox and Blackstone contemplated a bit. So there could right. be another deal here. In love with media, not in love with media. <laughs> (laughs) in love with (laughs) traditional media or whatever. Um, Cool stuff. Thank you guys so much for providing some clarity to all of this. Todd Shields, our FCC reporter at Bloomberg News, back in our 99.1 studio in the nation's capital. Brooke Sutherland, deals and industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion in our New York studio. Check them both out at Twitter. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, right here on Bloomberg. It is so bad when you finally know just how low, 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 low she's a bad, bad thing. 
All right, everybody. Uh, yeah, that's what the United States is saying to Russia. You did a bad, bad thing. And, of course, we know the U.S. imposed some sanctions on Russia. Now the Russia is coming back, threatening to do the same. Let's get into this with our Matthew Phillips, policy and politics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. Hey, Matthew, good to have you here with Jason and myself. I know we, we love to kind of round up Washington with you. And um, this story, the sanction battle between the U.S. and Russia, I'm having a hard time getting my head around because I just go back to the Helsinki meeting between Trump and Putin when they seemed like buddies and now we're fighting. Uh, make some sense of it. You're not the only one who's <laughs> feeling a little bit of whiplash here. Uh, those of us in Washington, as well as I'm sure plenty of people in Moscow, too. Remember, this is not even a month off from the Helsinki summit. The Russians thought everything was going nice. Things were on track. Putin thought it was quite successful. He was actually, you know, there's a sense of gloating almost about it. And then all of a sudden, the mood has gone 180 degrees in the other direction, uh, turned dramatically here. Um, specifically, what we saw get announced from the State Department yesterday is in response to the nerve agent attack on former spy uh, Sergei Skirk in the UK back in March. Uh, these are required under a 1991 law that mandates uh, the punishment of countries that use chemical weapons. They've only ever been used against North Korea and Syria. So this is a pretty big deal. Um, there are two components here. One uh, goes into effect in August, uh, on August 22nd, limit the exports uh, to Russia of U.S. goods and technology considered sensitive on national security grounds. The second, uh, which are much more uh, sweeping, uh, may follow uh, in November, just a couple of days before the election, in fact. Those would include a downgrading in diplomatic relations, bans on import of Russian oil and exports, and all other goods and technology. Um, and the question here really is, to your point up at the top, is about timing. And why, if these uh, were landed in response to an attack that happened back in March, right. why are we getting these things right now? And two things to remember. One, these happened um, almost two weeks after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had a very testy hearing in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about the administration's position toward Russia. He got grilled. He was visibly angry. This also comes uh, on the heels of a bill introduced last week that um, the kind of it took a while for the market and the, really the rest of us to to kind of to catch up to it. And those were introduced by uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina. Very draconian. Uh, it would limit uh, U.S. entities from buying Russian debt. It targets uh, some of its largest banks. It could even lead to the labeling of Russia as a state sponsor of terror. So you wonder about the timing here um, from a political standpoint from the White House, whether there's anything to be said about them feeling like Congress was maybe getting out in front of them on that. So, Matthew, I know we have been hearing not just about Russia, but also Iran this week when when it comes to sanctions. So put those in context for us. I know they're obviously separate issues, but it, it feels like, you know, there's Shark Week and it's now it's Sanctions <laughs> Week. Sanctions Week. Sanctions um, <laughs> year, maybe. I mean, look, the Trump administration has clearly found uh, something that it feels is quite effective, um, whether you're talking about companies or countries, uh, in pulling the sanctions lever. In specific uh, relation to Iran, obviously these are in reaction to uh, Trump pulling out of the nuclear accord right. in May. Um, and we're also going to get two components of that, too. We're going to get uh, some that hit earlier this week that had to do with uh, the gold market and, and Iranians' access to dollars. And then we get in November, again, 
November seems to be kind of the time when we get some of these things, uh, is uh, uh, sanctions that are aimed at um, really the lifeblood of the Iranian economy, which is the, their oil sector. So there is, um, you know, Look, Trump has clearly he, he campaigned on this. Mm. It's part of something that um, I feel like th- th- they probably feel like uh, previous administrations, especially the Obama administration, maybe didn't um, uh, use to their full advantage, which is the, the 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 power of the United States as as a market and as a as a force around the world. And when you put this test to companies, you know the, the interesting thing about the Iranian sanctions is that European uh, Europeans are not uh, on board with this, and yet their companies have. Uh, a clear, a stark choice to, to make here. You either do business with the United States or you do business with Iran. You may not do both. And obviously, it's a much more uh, lucrative market for them to do deals with the U.S., so the choice yeah. is obvious for them. Matthew, very quickly, I mean, sanctions come under the Treasury Department, which comes under Steven Mnuchin, which is the cover of Bloomberg Businessweek. That's kind of a, a cheap plug, but I'm going to do it anyway. But is, is Mnuchin behind all of this? Just quickly. Well, um, you know, that is a really interesting question because, on the one hand, he seems to have been very engaged on the sanctions front. Some of the details we get out of that story was um, how interested he's been in in learning kind of all the power that resides within Treasury right, on the right. sanctions front. But then, you know, we also have a sense that, at least uh, as it relates to what the Congress is putting out there, yeah. that this is something the Treasury w- was not in favor of, and especially limiting access to uh, right. to, to Russian debt. So, yeah. I mean, look, he, he's obviously got friends on, Wa- on Wall Street that are telling him one thing, uh, that this is going to be bad for the market, but then he's a survivor, yeah. and he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he, he wants to maintain his good graces with the president, so he's going along with it. All right, we got to run. Matthew Phillips of Bloomberg Businessweek, policy and politics editor from Washington. Oh, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do I, 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 A lot of swinging going on uh, out in St. Louis starting today and through Sunday. It, of course, is the PGA Championship. And one golfer who continues to fascinate is Tiger Woods. And we're going to bring in a guy who knows a little bit about Tiger. Uh, That is Dan Murphy. He's the CEO of Bridgestone Golf. He is based down in Covington, Georgia. I was teasing him about not having uh, not quite a southern accent, but I see some uh, hints of it. Here's some hints of it uh, here and there. But he is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Dan, great to have you with us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So, the PGA, obviously, is this week. It's going on right now. Tiger, I believe, even par. Uh, he's finished for the day. Uh, you got a chance to spend some time with him at your named tournament, I believe, last weekend. So how's he doing? He's doing great. Yeah, we had the Bridgestone Invitational in Akron, Ohio. It's played at Firestone Country Club. And, uh, yeah, so it was my first time. I'm, I'm just back with the company about six weeks. Uh, it was my first time to meet him, and it was just it was amazing. Uh, Why? Well, you know, I've been around a lot of pros, Freddie Couples and Brant Snedeker, Matt Kuchar, all of our other guys. But being with Tiger, it's just a different it's a different league. I had those butterflies in my stomach. I was careful of what I said. It's a little bit like being on your radio right now. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We're easy. We're easy. We're yeah. much nicer than Tiger. <laughs> no, but you think about, you know, we've often talked here on Bloomberg about how a younger generation not necessarily so interested in golf. But, you know, when you put Tiger on, you put him on in a tournament – the viewership goes up. People get interested and engaged. Again. The whole equation changes, it feels like. Yeah. Well, uh, completely. In the equation, that's a great, good way to put it. All of our metrics go off the charts when, when he's playing. Our, what do you mean specifically? Well, I mean, our, our website visits go way up. Our uh, our direct consumer sales go way up. Our 
Um, no kidding. It's oh, that yeah. noticeable. Oh, absolutely. And he's the one guy really that, that does that. Uh, you know, we have a lot of pros. I've been in the business for a very long time and you build your brand around the pros, but it's always a little bit difficult to see the cause and effect with Tiger. You do. You you guys picked him up, too, after Nike dropped him, correct? Correct. Tell me why you were willing to do that. When, well, when someone has said, oh, it's a tarnished brand. Well, no, I, I don't. I don't Because he's still Tiger Woods, and he still moves the needle, and he's still the best player that's ever walked the face of the earth. So to have him choose, and quite honestly, we certainly... You pitched him. Well, no, he 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 came to us because you yeah. know that we have the we, he knows that we have the best product in the business, and he tested a lot of products and and um, his analysis said we have the best product, and so he came to us and we said, well, sure, if the best player in in the history of the game wants to play our product, that's probably a good thing. And what is the business like right now? I mean, Carol alluded to the fact that you know you do hear these kind of existential threat stories around golf, especially as that a younger generation comes up but but what do you see as you as you look at your numbers as you walk the courses is is it uh is it not as bleak well, as no, we would think i think i know all, your answer but go on <laughs> it's not all doom and gloom we we see it being uh, very very steady some of the parts of the market with millennials even which is it's hard to get millennials to settle down and play yeah. 18 holes of golf and uh, especially and, when they're playing video games and esports and all that stuff right right i mean they they are we see an entry into the game with uh, top golf if you ever heard of that yeah. it's uh, sure it's it's essentially a bowling alley uh, adapted to a driving range and uh, so we see a lot of uh, millennials making the jump from that which is very active and, and actually coming onto the golf course and giving it a try for real Dan I am wondering what you're doing like I grew up in a golf family my dad was a golfer my four brothers were a golfer it's just the way it was kind of a rite of passage you know um, I'm just curious what you guys are though doing to to get to that younger audience that you hopefully hook them and have them for decades. Well, I think we have to have new new approaches to the game. You know, the traditional eighteen holes is is a lot of time commitment, even for me now. And uh, I am a baby boomer and uh, of that normal target market for golf. Uh, but to expand our target market, I think we have to make golf more fun, uh, invite some of the lifestyle elements that millennials want to see, allowing music on the course, allowing more of a casual dress, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and welcoming that, not just allowing it really, and, and, uh, and creating an experience where they can play this great game, but they can do it maybe in a shorter time frame. And it is, as we mentioned, the, the week of the PGA, and we will have live coverage of the first round today coming up at 4.15 Wall Street time here on Bloomberg Radio. But, but what do you see from a fan base? And, you know, I mean, the Tiger effect is real. I mean, watching the British Open a couple weeks ago had a totally different feel because he was in the mix. You could sense it coming through the TV. Well, I can tell you when he made the turn and for 59 minutes he had the lead and I was uh, I was jumping out of my seat. (laughs) I can tell you that. (laughs) So that was super exciting. And yeah, the the numbers are are way, way up. You know, the Bridgestone last week, for example, the TV ratings, because Tiger was in the field and he was talked about. It was one of his favorite courses. and He was talking about going for his ninth win there. He didn't get it. Right. But still. TV ratings were a seven, where a typical PGA Tour rating is somewhere around a three. So there he is the, with that double factor going on. What are you seeing in differences between um, you know the the U.S. consumer in golf versus the global consumer in golf? Well, we're we're Japanese based, uh, we're Tokyo based, and uh, we are the number one product and, and brand in that market. Um, it's a very different consumer. Uh, it's a very much more anal- analytical consumer. So the tech story is a much more relevant. 
um, pitch for us right. in, in Japan, where here it's much more of an aspirational pitch. Mm. Um, you know, to, the, the pros do it, so you know, take a uh, um, take a lesson from those guys. So, who do you see uh, coming up in the ranks? I mean, Tiger is back, Ooh. obviously, but who do you like this weekend? Bryson DeChambeau. Mm, okay. Yep. Yeah, he's gonna he's right on the cusp of making the Ryder Cup, and he's gonna have a big week at uh, Bell Reve in, in St. Louis and. He's one of our guys, by the way. Uh, I am not <laughs> surprised to hear that. You, do you find it uh, pretty easy to, uh, just about 30 seconds left, find it pretty easy to sign up pros these days? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we Because uh, we have a superior product, quite frankly. And uh, the pros, if we had an unlimited checkbook, we'd have unlimited pros because the product's that good. That's the easy part is the product. Right. right. That's great. Well, Dan Murphy, good luck to you. Chief Executive Officer of Bridgestone Golf. Based down in Covington, Georgia, but here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Do you ever get out on the links there, Carol Master? I don't, but I did grow up going to the driving range with my dad. It's the one thing I'm jealous of my brothers because they literally became, I don't know, a certain age, and my dad started taking them out on the course. Yeah. I, you know, I played as a younger man. I'm waiting for my boys to grow up a little bit more, get them out on the golf course. And you As know, a younger man? Da- what are you, 80? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I'm not as young as I once was, Carol. All right, everybody. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets with a young Jason Kelly and a young Carol Master. So I might just add, this is Bloomberg. Taking care of business every day. So check out the cover of Bloomberg Business Week. We've got a profile of U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin with the line, everything is fine, behind him several times. Let's bring in Devin Leonard. He's reporter at Bloomberg Business Week. He's really been covering and writing on so many different members and possible members of President Trump's team. And this week he was tasked with writing about Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Why now, Devin? Well, look, the guys, just the fact that he's lasted 18 months, you know, in a White House where, you know, 22 people have either resigned under pressure, you know, or just resigned. I mean, it's just a tumultuous place. I mean, some people would call it a snake pit. So this guy is the Treasury Secretary of the United States, somebody that people really didn't think was in the last. He had no governmental experience. And he was somebody that I think a lot of people thought you know, was a lightweight. Some people still think he's, he's a lightweight and say even worse things about him. But he's still there, and he's still Trump still seems to have his back. I and mean, we'll see how long it lasts, though. Well, and to that point, I, I got to read a quote. It was one of my favorite quotes in the whole story. You, you talked to uh, Lloyd Blankfein, none other than Goldman CEO <laughs> Lloyd Blankfein. And he says, quote, he might not be right in the long run, but guess what? They didn't think he'd be right in the short term. I mean, what an amazing quote that really sums it all up. So what has been Mnuchin's secret here? Well, I, I think part of his secret is that he's been—he just knows how to re- read his boss. He know—he knows what what is you know his boss is watching TV, looking at the newspapers, and he doesn't want to see people step out of line. So Mnuchin is being very careful not to step out of line, and and also he's gone out of his way to praise you know you, you know Trump in situations that you know other people. People like Gary Cohn, who, who you know, he he's gone, uh, mm-hmm. and, and and you know as the guy who was running the VA, he's gone. But but you know he he stood up for Trump, you know you know in in uh, August, you know after the, you know the violent sort of you know ra- you know rally in uh, in in the Charlottesville. But uh, he's and he's he, but he's he's been very careful. He he is pursuing his own sort of strategy. I, I mean I mean I guess you could say you could say all these people in the White House, they're all. Share this, you know, you know the same, you know, policies, but the way they're all pursuing them, especially when it comes to China, and you know, in Mnuchin's case, uh, he has a very different strategy than, than other people. But but but, and the question is sort of, how does he pursue it? He's a moderate without, uh, you know, getting on the wrong side of his boss. So the history books, Devin, are they going to say good Treasury Secretary? He set out with a mission, he got it done, or 
I don't know what kind of Treasury secretary. He was mostly backing up the president. Or well, cleaning up for the president. Well, I mean, I, th- I think the idea is that the, you know the Treasury Secretary is supposed to have sort of some independence, uh, in, you know, from the president. When you look at the people, I think you know, the, you know, in recent history, that people think are great. That you, you know, there's 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 Bob Rubin. Forget about what happened later on, you know, with Citigroup and and mm-hmm. you, you know, and his bonuses and all that stuff. But when he was Treasury Secretary under Clinton, we had you know economic prosperity. People talked about the policies of the Clinton administration, the, po- the economic policies as Rubenomics. So, you know, that was clearly Bob Rubin, Rubin you know, advising Clinton, as, you know, as opposed to Clinton telling him what to do. Hank Paulson, we know Bush, you know, pretty much gave him free reign to, to handle, you know, to deal with the economic crisis. And I, I think a lot of people think he was, you know, he was literally you know, a hero or certainly was, was heroic. Tim Geithner, you know, I think is somebody who had a lot of credibility and a lot of gravitas and, and who Obama, you know, really relied on. In the case, though, of, you know, Mnuchin, his boss is constantly un- undercutting him, and there's just you know a litany of examples, and 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 really, it's it's it makes it hard for Mnuchin to to do his job, and 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 also I think you know ultimately to he has to kind of, um, what's the best best way of putting it? He he has to he has to do uh, you know I will say biting his tongue, I, you know you know I you know you know I think I think to you know you know to to, to stay there as as. Uh, yeah. You know, Treasury Secretary in the position Alexander Hamilton, you know, once well, held. Well, and it is interesting. You know, one of the things you point out is, as you're going through that that list of former Treasury Secretaries is, you know, especially you think about a Hank Paulson or a Bob Rubin, you know, these were known entities right. to Wall Street. And that is obviously a very important relationship. And while Steve Mnuchin worked at Goldman Sachs back in the day, he's not of Wall Street in the same way. I mean, he fairly quickly, you know, went to Los Angeles. He was a hedge fund manager. Right. His father had worked uh, at Goldman Sachs, but he did not distinguish himself in the same way that those others did. And so he doesn't have that, pun intended, sort of currency right. Right. with the financial markets that right. may be others. And and by virtue of that, he has chosen other places to to show some sort of influence, it feels like. Well, he's he's been very aggressive in the, in the use of sanctions. He obviously was very involved in uh, the uh, you know tax reform. Although some people would say he sort of just discredited himself a little bit by not, you know, I guess by pursuing you know tax cuts and never at least showing you know you know the outside world what the uh, analysis was to back up you know his claim that the tax cuts would you know would pay for themselves. But uh, and, and I think internationally, you know, he came in not knowing a whole lot by you know by mm-hmm. his own admission. Some people internally, I guess, you know, who worked on him but have left on the international side felt he didn't show a lot of curiosity there. So, um, but, you know, I think on sanctions, also the uh, FinCEN, you know, you know, which, which, uh, which, uh, you know, investigates sort of, you know, you know, you know, the banking industry, you know, he's, he's been, he's been aggressive with all that stuff. And, and I don't know, he may, uh, yeah. He may he well I, I you know I think one of the issues there is that he's he's been he's been pushed by Democrats because Democrats feel that, uh, uh, that maybe the Treasury knows some things about his boss. There's and, a lot in yeah. this story. We got to run. Sure. I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 I hate yeah. cutting you off, no, Devin Leonard, fine, fine. reporter at Bloomberg Business Week. Go to Bloomberg.com. Pick up the magazine. Check it out, everybody. It's a great read. Cover story. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
This is the drive to the close. That funk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. Karen Kavanaugh is Senior Vice President and Senior Market Strategist at Voya Investment Management with us from Charleston, South Carolina, with a reminder for investors about the ABCs of investing. Uh, great to have you back with us, Karen. Good to catch uh, up with you Thank once you. again. Yeah. So the ABCs, what exactly are you talking about? Well, investors are they're bombarded with a lot of negative headlines. I mean, there's a lot about the trade wars, about the stronger dollar, about sanctions, Iran and Russia. But if you take a look at the basics, and those are the ABCs, those, those really guide you, and they can cut through all the noise. And those ABCs are, A, is accelerating corporate earnings. And boy, are they accelerating. We're at all-time corporate highs uh, for, for profits. B, broadening manufacturing, and we're seeing that manufacturing is coming along, and we're seeing good numbers in hiring and uh, business there. And C is the consumer, because we know that the consumer is the biggest part of the U.S. economy. Consumers are strong, uh, and the reason they're so strong is, is, is because the jobs market continues to, to really wow. We saw that with un, uh, initial unemployment claims, very low today uh, and yesterday in the, the jobs report from a couple of days, days ago, which showed record high number of job openings. So those ABCs are, are looking very good. Then you can kind of put some of the noise on the back burner. Trade tariffs, yeah, that is worrying. But right now, companies are really getting it done, and that's the most important thing for the market. Well, Karen, you mentioned the trade wars, and and you dismissed it like we hear so many people uh, dismissing it. Why hasn't it hit yet, or is it not going to? How do you read that? How do you model that in? Well, I wouldn't say it's not. It, it, we have seen material prices go up, and we have seen some companies talk about it. Overall, companies are still guiding higher for the rest of the year in terms of earnings. Right. So I think the market is gaining some confidence in that and saying, oh, well, you know, it's not that bad. But I would say that um, even though we're, we're, we have these tariffs that are going back and forth, I don't think that we're out of the woods because we're looking at something with China as, as a huge shift in the way they do business. That's not going to be easy, and that's not going to be quick. So I think that the, the, the what's going on in the situation with China is going to take some time. And I think there will, will be more volatility. I think we're in a period now where we're just having a great time with earnings, and we see a lot of tariffs back and forth, but there's not really been any actual impact. That's not to say that we won't have some impact, and that's why investors should stay diversified and make sure they have – stocks and bonds. But it's just hey. because we've been talking about tariffs, but yeah. it, hasn't really, it hasn't really melted down into earnings. Karen, if I may, and just because we've been having a few discussions here, uh, Jason and myself, along with our Dave Wilson, our stocks columnist, kind of about breath in the market. And Dave had an interesting start to uh, chart today where he talked about the S&P 500 specifically and the FANG stocks and their peers, you know, largely explaining why the S&P right now is flirting with records again. And just talking about Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, parent alphabet, along with Microsoft and a few others, Apple too, how they're accounting for 38% of the S&P 500's gain from the February 8th low uh, until yesterday. And that's a lot more uh, than I think with the previous run-up and the previous six months. Um, When you look at breath, what do you see? Well, I also see that if you take a look at the equally weighted S&P 500, that it still would be up. So maybe not up as much as it is with the FANG stocks. But remember, those FANG stocks, those high-flying growth stocks, high momentum, they, they have been outperforming. But uh, you would still be – investors would still be well compensated even if they were an equally weighted portfolio of the S&P 500. But I also tell investors I mean, that – 
we saw we saw some of these things. Hey, sometimes they go up and sometimes they go down, and we've seen that over the last couple of weeks. But um, if you were globally diversified, for example, small caps, small caps are up double digits. Mid caps are doing well. I think just pinning your all of your um, all of your investments on a particular segment of the market is risky. So I think that the markets will still be up. The equity markets in the U.S. are doing very well, and it's not just the bank stocks, but like I said, small caps, mid caps, and even just regular S&P stocks are doing well because earnings are doing well. All right. So, Karen, what... also the oh, I also just wanted to mention the consumer discretionary sector. I mean, that people wrote that one off as being oh, it's the end of retail, and look at that's that's competing with tech as one of the, the top performers so far this year. So, what worries you then, Karen? This is a very, very optimistic view of the world. Well, I, I do. I mean, obviously, I'm worried about what's going on with China because, like I said, it's, this is going to be a change in the way China does business. We're not saying, oh, we're going to slap some tariffs on them and things will all be better. We're saying we have to change the way business is done in China. And with trade secrets, intellectual property, that's a, that's a huge ball of wax. So that does worry me. Um, I do worry that sometimes investors are their own worst enemy, that we have a Fed that's uh, – determined to raise rates because they want to have a little bit of firepower should things go south. Uh, Higher rates based on higher growth is not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes investors get nervous about that. And, you know, the the stronger dollar, of course, is is a little bit um, is a headwind. But overall, I'm kind of finding it harder to put on a uh, to put on a frown when corporate earnings are growing at 25 percent the first quarter, and I just looked 25 percent the second quarter. So, I'm, and I see companies continuing to guide up. So, yeah, it's it's very hard to it's hard, very hard to be negative right. when you see corporate earnings doing that. And that's why I say ABCs. The A is accelerating corporate earnings. Right. And when you see that it's time to put all the other noise on the back burner. It'll show up in the earnings when things are bad. All right, got to run. Karen, thank you so much. Uh, Karen Cavanaugh, Senior Vice President, Senior Market Strategist at Voya Investment Management, uh, on the phone from Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, some optimism. We've had that from a couple of guests. We, I feel like there's a lot of optimism out there, which, you know, worries me. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. Well, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of complacency in the market, I feel like. But there's also, I think, a fear, a FOMO, fear of missing out at the markets. Like Jamie Dimon says, he could see the equity markets moving up, I think, for another maybe couple of years. So. Less optimism in uh, Tesla shares today. They are down yeah. as much as they rose on the back of that, uh, all that drama created by Mr. Musk's tweet about going private. Yeah, down 4.7% as we speak. Hey, folks, don't go anywhere. We've got the closing bell coming your way in just a moment. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser, right here on Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.